You're listening to The Feast, a podcast dedicated to the meals that made history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and welcome to Season 4. We've spent the break finding some great new stories. This season, we're taking you around the world, from England's pineapple craze in the early modern era to 1,000-year-old distilling traditions in the Sonoran Desert, to the 1950s swingin' supper clubs of Wisconsin. We've talked to some of the most innovative chefs, scholars, and distillers around the world to highlight these often untold stories of food. This season, we will have a new mouth-watering episode for you every two weeks, plus a few bonus episodes along the way. Hopefully, you've already had a chance to wet your proverbial whistle with our bonus episodes from November and December 2019, featuring an interview with Robert Tunnell, writer and director of the new movie, Feast of the Seven Fishes, which is dedicated to an Italian-American holiday culinary tradition. You may also have caught our discussion with Dr. Ian Glomsky, founder and CEO of Vitae Spirits of Charlottesville, Virginia who makes a delicious liqueur from the hardy orange, an invasive, weedy type of plant that popped up on America's shores in the 19th century. We have got so many great food and drink stories for you this season, kicking off with an exclusive interview that looks at not only our favorite topic, historical feasts, of course, but also the other side of that coin, fasting. Particularly in these early days of 2020, when the excesses of the holidays are just barely in the rearview mirror. We're all trying to hit the gym or shed the sugar like we promised we would on New Year's Day. So what better time to get a little inspiration from how other periods and other cultures also embraced feasting and fasting. Feast and Fast, The Art of Food in Europe, is a new exhibition at the Fitzwilliam Museum, located in Cambridge, England. The exhibition takes a hard look at exactly these topics, specifically during what is often known as the early modern period, roughly 1500 to 1800. Although catchphrases like clean eating or plant-based diets may sound very 21st century, in fact, these terms have very, very long histories, dating all the way back to the ancient world, and as the exhibition demonstrates, were very popular topics in early modern Europe as well. The Fitzwilliams' new exhibition focuses on early modern depictions and understandings of food. That is, the factors that went into what did or did not appear on an early modern European table. The roughly 300 years that span the end of the medieval world and lead up to what is often known as the modern age were a time of intense transition for Europe. An increase in travel and shipping brought new products, and specifically foods, to European tables. Everything from chocolate to potatoes to pineapples. Meanwhile, Developments in medicine and science, not to mention the start of the Industrial Revolution, changed how people perceived their food. What was healthy to eat and what wasn't. What exactly was the journey from farm to fork? But we're also looking at a very religious period in Europe, largely dominated by various denominations of Christianity. Up to 40% of the Christian year was often defined as fasting days or 
thin dates, as they were often known, where folks would choose to abstain from dairy, meat, sugar, and often eggs. Changes during the early modern period resonated strongly on the diet of Europeans, affecting how food was presented on the table or in a store, how it was grown, shipped, bought, or sold. Featuring over 300 objects from the Fitzwilliams collection, not to mention objects on loan from Cambridge University, visitors to the exhibition, which is on now through April 26, 2020, can see historically accurate culinary recreations of table settings from this period, featuring porcelain, precious silver tableware, delicate glassware, as well as, my personal favorite, elaborate sugar sculptures that would have been a highlight and centerpiece of many an elite banquet from the era. Today, for our season four premiere, we're featuring our conversation with the two co-curators of the exhibition, Drs. Victoria Avery and Melissa Kalarasu, both from Cambridge University. My name's Dr. Vicky Avery. I'm the keeper of the Applied Arts Department here at the Fitzwilliam Museum, University of Cambridge. Um, and it's really the majority of objects in the exhibition come from either my department, the Applied Arts Department, or the Paintings, Drawings and Prints Department, or elsewhere within the University of Cambridge. And I'm uh, Dr. Melissa Calarezu. I am um, the Neil McKendrick Lecturer in History at Gonville and Keyes College at the University of Cambridge, and I am, as he says, one of the co-curators of Feast and Fast. The exhibition, which opened in November 2019, unpacks the history of humanity's very long and very complicated relationship to food. As Vicky and Melissa say, eating right in early modern Europe was as treacherous and complex an issue as making these food choices now. Now, I wanted to know what led them to be interested in putting on such an exhibition. Why choose Europe's early modern period to highlight why the question of what to eat has always been a complicated one? Well, we both love food. <laughs> say that. Um, I have a background in history of food, and I wouldn't say I am a food historian, but I have. I think I'm increasingly becoming one. And my research started off really looking at social practices in Naples in the 18th century and led me to ice cream. And out of an article about ice cream, I moved on to street vendors, uh, basically people selling food on the street. So I came into food history in a very unusual way. I didn't start with dining or with, um, you know, recipe books or anything like that, but really about food on the street. And from my point of view, it's really the sort of the objects. So um, I have something like, I don't know, 40,000 objects um, in the applied arts department. Many are on view in the permanent galleries, but many are not. Um, and Melissa and her students have been ferreting around. Um, and there are, you know, obviously wonderful hidden treasures. Um, and so from my point of view, um, food is a great, well, it can be a great divider, of course, but it can be a great equalizer. And I felt that actually the topic of food is very, very um, germane. Um, very um, key and critical to current debates we have, you know, about, um, I don't know, plastic in the oceans or uh, food issues, bulimia, anorexia, or perhaps food inequalities, food banks. The public who come into the museum are very aware of contemporary debates. So we felt that in a way doing an exhibition about food, but from the early modern perspective, may explain to the public some of their concerns. Um, you know, many of these issues have, if not absolute direct parallels, there are similarities 
similarity. So we felt that we've got this fantastic treasure trove of objects. We have Melissa's expertise. Food is very, very relevant nowadays. So let's bring the public on a journey back with us to look at some wonderful objects, thinking about the concerns, the issues of you know, three, four, five hundred years ago. And hopefully at the end of the exhibition, our visitors will have a better understanding of um, some of the concerns and issues today. Early modern feasts tend to have a reputation for opulence. Think Baroque-era tables dripping with gold and silver, beautiful game birds, opulent pies, and pounds and pounds of sugar. Often molded into giant sculptures representing nature or even a local landmark, At the Fitzwilliam exhibition, thanks to culinary recreations by food historian Ivan Day, modern visitors can see an early modern elite feasting table laid out with an appropriately impressive sugar sculpture made in the shape of a 17th century banqueting house, Melford Hall in Long Melford, Suffolk. And if you'd like to see an image of this fantastic sugar work, we'll put a link to the exhibition images on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. Um, Well, we have almost 300 objects. Um, Many of them are absolutely unique, exquisite examples of craftsmanship, really telling the story of elite dining. We've got some incredibly rare pieces of college silver um, lent by Gonville Keys College and by Corpus Christi College that the public would normally never see to explain about really the the bling of um, dining tableware, elite dining, the drama, the theatre. But we really want to tell the tale through objects of the, the the production and the sourcing and the provisioning of food, a little bit like, you know, from farm to fork, if you will, but then tell also the stories of everyday eating married up with feasting and fasting. So really what we wanted to do with the show is to bring food right back into the centre of the exhibition. So the subtitle is called The Art of Food in Europe uh, 1500 to 1800. Um, and we wanted to show the skill of the um, makers of the silver, the glass, the porcelain, and so on, but also the skills and expertise of the, the cooks, the chefs, the pastry makers, and so on. And we have in the wonderful Ivan Day, a magician, a conjurer, somebody who's able to recreate using historical molds, tools, equipment, recipe books to conjure up for our visitors these wonderful if you like mise-en-scene, these theatrical recreations of food and to put our historical artifacts in the midst of food. So even if people find these early modern objects a little bit difficult to get their head around, maybe a bit boring, everybody can understand a bird pie or a sugar sculpture, something like that. So we thought, let's go in via the avenue of food. So um, Ivan Day has been our absolutely wonderful um, principal uh, consultant. Um, And he has made for us, as you say, three big tableaux vivants, if you like. So you walk into the show and the very first thing that you see before you is a late Tudor sugar banquet. It's 1600 
with some historical artefacts, a wonderful, very rare Flemish tablecloth and a napkin, some Tudor painted trenches, little round wooden plates, um, some glassware, some um, silver gilt items, but shown in the context of food. So Ivan has recreated a sugar conceit, a centrepiece looking like uh, a miniature version of the banqueting house at uh, Melford Hall, a local country house. And then lots and lots of wonderful, yummy, edible things like gingerbreads and comfits and biscuits and so on. But also out of sugar paste, as they did in the Tudor period, bacon and eggs. Uh, and also a lot of the tableware, the paraphernalia, actually ends up being a bit of a joke and it's actually edible. So we have edible, as it were, Chinese porcelain blue and white dishes and we have edible ceramic tatsas. Um So there's a little bit of a joke about what you can eat and what you can't eat and the fact that half the tableware is actually edible. And then moving on through the show, we have a recreation of a Georgian confectioner's high-end confectioner's window and workshop, um, and then a wonderful Baroque feasting table uh, in the second room with a number of bird pies on it that bring out all the um, you know the paintings, the cookery books, the recipes, the bills of fare, and so on. So you have a sort of a 3D hyperreal aspect of the show where food is muddled in with the historic objects, and we hope that these are absolutely considered as works of art in their own right. I mean, I'm I'm just interested in the the people who would have been creating these items, say, in the early modern era. Were these things that would have been exclusively, I imagine, for a very elite audience um, and something to uh, observe? Or were the things that were um, supposed to look like, say, non-edible objects, but were actually edible. Were these parts of um, banquets? Were these parts of feasts? Uh, what were the role on the table? No, these um, these are, these are elite, entirely elite objects and um, elite recreations. Absolutely, um, you know, aristocratic, you know, Roman palaces or um, uh, an aristocratic house, a country house in England. So they are really very, very much meant for the. Uh, an elite audience, behind which is all of this labor. And that's some of the things that we're really interested in bringing in, not only the labor in, in the making, the making that Ivan is involved in, but the labor in the instruments used, and also the labor in finding some of these and producing some of the foodstuffs that go into the into the sculptures, including including sugar. So we try also to include, if you want, the darker side of um, you know the sugar display at the very beginning of the exhibition and, and have a section on slavery in the Caribbean. I.e., like where all of the sugar was coming from, all of the the kind of um, the, the products that were ending up on this table, what their their journey was to get to that table. That's right. Yeah, no, that's right. In the early modern period, I mean, in the very beginning, there's a, a cup made from a turbo shell, and I think we make the point that that you know behind the this very beautiful object which would have sat on a, on a on a 16th to 17th century table was in fact the labor of someone um, finding that turbo shell very far away in the you know, in, in South Asia and, and also with the sugar, a really important message, which is that sugar is, is central to a lot of these table creations, but also central to a kind of uh, dehumanizing um, economy that was, you know, a, a part of a globalizing economy. So we want to bring in the global, I guess, something that, that I think rings true today that, um, you know, our food comes from somewhere and we need to think about where it comes from and the kind of ethical background to, to food production. Absolutely. And and were 
uh, say, folks from the early modern period also engaging with these kinds of questions? Was there a question or perhaps a concern over where the sugar came from or in what conditions uh, was, you know, sugar refining being being done, I suppose? That's a good question. I mean, that's what Dutch historians are asking today, Dutch um, art historians are asking today. There's a very good book, actually, I don't know if you know, by Julie Hogstrasser, um, which precisely deals with this question about to what extent did Dutch viewers of these Dutch Golden Age paintings have any idea of where the sugar or the salt or the herring comes from? And I think the answer is probably uh, not so clear, but people are aware of it, and that's what she tries to re- reconstruct the story. By the end of the 18th century, in most of Europe, people absolutely understand where the sugar is coming from, and they do understand um, slavery. In fact, what you find in that period is a kind of early ethical consumerist movement, which is dealt with in the exhibition with a very small sugar bowl from the Castle Museum in Norwich, which says sugar, uh, it's a sugar bowl, it says sugar not made by slaves. And that's part of a movement also that goes into the 19th century, which is asking consumers to make political choices, that is to buy sugar and to buy cotton that has not been produced by slave labor. So there is this growing concern over the conditions in which certain products, certainly including food, are being made and then also transported. Um, and, and is there a tie in any way that you see of perhaps a decline in interest in the, say, elaborate sugar sculptures because of this awareness or is that just an entirely different fad? I mean, what we try to do actually in the exhibition is in a sense, yes, there is in the sense, no, there's not. So we've deliberately set up this rather gritty juxtaposition. So we have on display a letter and an enclosure kind of lent by St. John's College, Cambridge as part of their anti-slavery collection. And it's from the uh, Jamaica sugar plantation of a chap called um, William Perrin. So he was a Briton who owned, he inherited about five or six sugar plantations in Jamaica. And it's a letter back from his plant, European plantation managers talking in very um, general terms about, you know, the harvest and about um, taxation and about um, packing up the crops of sugar and other um, foodstuffs from the plantation. But then in the same breath, talking about um, a new gang of slaves who've just been acquired. I mean, how can you buy a human, we would ask nowadays, anyhow, to um, help, you know, provide the workforce for the sugar. This is dated, I think it's something like March 1797. And then almost the next but one exhibit beyond the sugar basin mentioned by Melissa, there's a Gilray print um, of two soldiers sitting in a high-end confectioners in London, and they're, they're scoffing um, sugar almonds and um, whipped syllabub. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a confectioner shop called Kelsey. Um, and really, in fact, the, the print is very saying something about, you know, billeting of soldiers in the Napoleon war, but it's useful for us that it's the confectioner's shop. And of course, the, the print is published just three months after the letter back from um, the Jamaica sugar plantation. So we're hoping that people will do the maths. And so on the one hand, um, in 1797, you've got this, um, as Melissa says, this very dehumanizing, this appalling uh, trafficking and exploitation of humans to um, produce the sugar that is in so much demand across Europe. And then on the other hand, you've got these soldiers scoffing themselves in a, in a, in a high-end sugar store, eating all the prod- produce 
created um, you know, by, by sugar as, as the primary ingredient. So um, we hope that these juxtapositions will almost make people sit up. Um, and you see in the one hand, the very beautiful displays of sugar, um, the craftsmanship, the artfulness, but also in a way, the sickening aspects, the not sweet aspects at all. There are certainly levels and, and kind of compounding levels of this political awareness, awareness of where the food comes from, and then this element of, of overindulgence um, and, and you know, this, this overconsumption, of, particularly in this case, sugar. Um, was there also a concern or perhaps any kind of cultural judgment happening about the, I, I suppose, in, in modern parlance, we'd say that the nutritional elements or lack thereof of sugar, that um, you weren't eating something that was that was very good for you. Um, was there any concern on that level as well? Um, I think there is some uh, discussion about sugar and health. In fact, Thomas Tryon, in one of his books, so Thomas Tryon was a kind of a health writer of the late 17th century. He was an Anabaptist, also a sugar merchant. And in one of his um, self-help books, he actually talks about sugar and the fact that women in particular, women and girls are particularly susceptible to the taste of sugar, but also that sugar has this sort of ne a negative um, impact on the body as well. So he actually is talking about that in the late 17th century. Oh, that's so interesting. And in, in that there's a negative effect, um, but there's not, I, I'm sure there's, there's still the concept of too much of a good thing. So perhaps not a, a diet made entirely of sugar is recommended. Um, but is, do you see really that's the end of it or that's the limit of it of perhaps you shouldn't have sugar all day, every day? Well, I think there's a very much sort of um, a discussion throughout the period by many different authors, whether they are radical Anabaptists or they're Catholics or whatever. But there's this sort of theological argument that actually one really ought to eat in moderation. Um, so anyway, anything is too bad for you if you overindulge. And it may lead to the um, sin of being um, uncharitable because you, you are greedy and you do not share your food. So um, we do have a number of medical books. We have a kind of um, this idea of health. Often it's actually underwritten by Christian ideas. But for example, again, there's Thomas Tryon, who Melissa mentioned, very, very interesting. We have a book called Wisdom's Dictates, um, in which he's absolutely promoting a vegan diet. He's, he's promoting it from a health point of view, but ultimately it's underpinned by kind of a religious understanding that first man, um, and as created by God, the Garden of Eden, actually they're all vegans and vegetarians because God creates man first, then he creates the animals Adam names the animals they're supposed to be as mates. Then he gets bored of them, so God creates Eve. Then, of course, um, by greed and disobedience, they eat the apple from the forbidden tree and they are thrown out of Eden and then must work for his or her daily bread. I had the chance to look up some of Thomas Tryon's writings, this early advocate of a plant-based diet in early modern England. He wrote a bunch on health and nutrition all underscored, of course, by a healthy dose of Christianity. But as old as his writings are, some of them strike an interesting parallel to many of the health food wisdom you can find anywhere today in 2020. For example, as Tryon says, quote, Eat not to dullness, for that is a token of gluttony and a forerunner of diseases. Basically, don't stuff yourself silly. Pretty easy advice there. Or how about, quote, Moderate fasting is a most excellent physician, both for the body and mind. 
Are any intermittent fasters out there paying attention? Or try this one. Quote, let your food be simple. Talk about clean eating. And finally, refrain at all times such foods as cannot be procured without violence and oppression. Should we call this an early cry to fair trade or humane labor laws? Maybe even a direct call out against killing animals for meat. And on that note, as Vicky mentioned, Tryon was a vocal advocate for a vegetarian or even vegan diet. So much so, he wrote a poem about it. Which, don't worry, I'm not going to read all of, but here's a snippet to give you a clue. Quote, Whence springs so dire an appetite in man to interdicted food? O mortals, can or dare you feed on flesh? Henceforth forbear. I you entreat, and to my words give ear. When limbs of slaughtered beasts become your meat, then think and know that you, your servants, eat. I grant you, I know several vegans who wouldn't exactly like Tryon's description of animals as humanity's servants, but his point is still in the same vein. What reasons do humans have to eat meat when there are so many other things humans can eat and enjoy? Not only is it the moral path to do a plant-based diet, he also argues, it's much better nutritionally. Tryon goes back to this idea that he's saying, actually, if you want to lead a long, happy and healthy life, the way to do this is to eschew uh, meat eating and have a plant-based diet. And he uses these very emotive terms, which I think, I mean, a lot of our visitors have a slight misunderstanding that, you know, weird old, you know, veganism and vegetarianism is a 21st century phenomenon. Well, you know, absolutely not at all. In fact, it has its roots, of course, way back in sort of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, which in medieval understandings as well. So this idea, I think, of eating in moderation, nothing in excess, and then this idea of humoral theory that, you know, again, um, depending if you are a phlegmatic person or a sanguine or a choleric person, again, there are foods that are better for you and foods that you should try and avoid. And it's all about balance. Oh, very interesting. And and having a, a religious undertone as well of if you adopt a, a vegetarian and specifically a vegan diet, you're actually going back to something that would have resembled the Edenic diet, the, the pre-fall diet of Adam and Eve. Um, so there's that, at least from a Christian context, um, that there's this this religious undertone to a reason not to eat animals or or products from animals as well. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I would say also about Trine is that he's he has that kind of religious that the, un, underneath his ideas, but also he's selling it as a kind of health diet as well. So he he talks about the physical um, aspects of eating meat or not eating meat. Um, so it's it's not simply a religious thing, but also like a kind of physical thing. And he really pushes the idea of a healthy diet through moderation, as Vicky says but through a plant-based diet with no meat in it at all. He actually talks in very kind of, um, I wouldn't say emotive, but very descriptive ways about what the impact of a piece of fish or a piece of meat in the stomach might be. Hmm. And I just wonder, uh, continuing on that theme, when he talks about the the benefits to this diet um, from a, say, I don't want to say nutritional, but let's say from a physical standpoint, is is he speaking specifically about you can avoid 
uh, diseases, you can uh, live longer in more general terms, or is he actually doing it in um, a sense where this will improve your overall well-being, this will increase your memory abilities, this will make you sleep better, this will, I mean, kind of giving more of a, on a day-to-day lifestyle basis, not eating animal products makes you just a little bit more productive and, and living a better life, or is it more you are now avoiding uh, illness and and disease and and kind of a, an early death by by avoiding meat. I think actually long life is in one of the titles, no, Vicky, um, in one of the titles that he writes. So he isn't interested in selling these these health books as kind of uh, guides to longer and healthier life. So there is a, a definitely an aspect of of um, of a kind of healthy lifestyle, but I mean also something is that he really believes in the ethics of eating and not eating. So there's a kind of ethical aspect to it, which you could say is Christian, but actually I think it's broader than that. So sometimes trying as part of a history of the history of animal rights writers, um, he he has this very interesting dialogue, a kind of barnyard dialogue between animals in the farmyard. And he goes one by one through the different animals talking about their treatment by humans. So there is a kind of broader question he's interested in, which is what we're interested in as well. We want to eat meat of animals that have been treated well. And so he's very specifically concerned with animal husbandry. So he talks, for instance, about how cows are treated um, by their masters. He calls them, he has these cows talking to each other. He also talks about the fact that babies are taken away by their mothers to kind of keep the milk trade going, milk industry going as well, but also in the kind of ethical, um, and if you want Christian um, kind of framework in which this, you know, in, in, the, in the diet that he's promoting. And and just to refresh my memory, um, he's writing in in what era about? So the late 17th century, the 1690s. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is just, you know, you're mentioning a lot of themes in his writing that I think that we often associate with industrialized food production. But of course, this would have been largely prior to the Industrial Revolution. And yet they are still concerned with these very specific questions of how is this this animal that, you know, perhaps is going to be eventually used for food, how is that animal being cared for and treated for? And that, that's something that actually predates the industrialized food process. Yeah, and so for example, another um, character we bring into the discourse is um, a um, a Catholic hermit saint who um, is from the Franciscan tradition, um, a chap called San Francesco de Paola. Um, he's knocking around the south of Italy in the sort of 1460s, 70s, 80s. He forms a new um, order of friars, um, hermit friars, very, very aesthetic indeed, called the minims, from the Latin word minimus, we, you know, they feel they are the least worthy of all. And you know how friars would take the three vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. Well, um, uh, Francesco made all of his minims take a fourth vow um, of no meat eating and no dairy produce again, because he believed that animals were on a level with a man and they shouldn't be exploited, they shouldn't be abused. And so he is known as the patron saint of vegans and vegetarians. But I say, so again, I think people think that this discourse is somehow, as you say, maybe um, in, in the industrial revolution or a lot of of these discourses are absolutely 21st century. Well, actually, this is um, a later 15th century discourse. But again, as I say, it does have even earlier roots. So I think what we're just trying to do is draw the public's attention through the odd medical book or the image of this particular saint to the fact that actually, if one knows one's history, a lot of these debates, a lot of these discussions actually have far longer roots than many of our visitors might actually imagine. 
one element of what not to eat, or at least the concept of moderation in eating, that was one of the most pervasive throughout the medieval, early modern, and even in the modern world, was the concept of fasting. When Europe was dominated by the Catholic Church, there were strict laws on fasting on the books. Ingredients like dairy, eggs, and meat were often considered off-limits on saints' days or other holy days. Moderation was something that had been preached since the early days of the church. Monks were often asked to adopt a strict and minimal diet. And even regular, or lay Catholics, were asked to avoid rich foods like meat on Fridays, not to mention for all of Lent. But just as European Christians were asked to moderate their diet or even fast, they were also given the occasional freedom to indulge. Just as we often will allow ourselves an extra slice of pie at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Occasionally, yes, of course you can let your hair down and you can party because it's the great uh, you know, uh, celebration of somebody's birthday or it's a royal marriage or it's a victory or it might be Christmas or whatever it is. But actually, you also balance everything out with fasting. So, of course, in the early modern period, we all forget something like 40% of the year was given over to fasting day. So, of course, if you're fasting 40% of the year, you can absolutely let your hair down during high days and holidays. And then, of course, there's everyday eating, eating just enough to survive and feed your family. So, I think moderation was, um, in a way, the touchstone of people from many, many different religious persuasions and sort of pseudo-medical ideas. But yeah, moderation was thought to be, um, you know, a good thing, I think. But it's not just the food itself and the settings the exhibition discusses, but how important time was to the culinary calendar of early modern Europe, whether we're talking about seasons, holidays, even days of the week. And even the Fitzwilliam exhibition itself is timed to how many an early modern European may have had their diet prescribed by the day, week, month. The exhibition has been deliberately timed. It's a five-month-long run, um, but we start off deliberately just before Advent, a solemn time of fasting and sort of penitential preparation before the great feasting of the 12 days of Christmas as was um, in the early modern period. Then there's sort of more ordinary eating. Then, of course, there's the great excessive time of carnival, you know, carne vale, goodbye to meat. So you have um, the great uh, yeah, carnival excesses, and then you have the 40 days of Lent, solemn fasting and abstinence and in moderation in eating before the great Christian festival of Easter. Um, and then the show finishes two weeks after Easter. So what we're trying to remind people of are the highs and the lows and the everyday eating. They've, of course, been rather flat-bottomed out in today's society. If you think this sounds a little unusual or archaic, just think about how tied to time modern food trends can be. There's, of course, the fast diet and the now very popular intermittent fasting, advocating for you to only eat for certain hours of the day or fast during specific days of the week. And as this episode is going to be released in early January, How many out there have opted for a dry January, going a full month without alcohol as a way to recover from holiday excesses? But let's step away from fasting for a minute to talk about another focus of the exhibition, one that links back to the use of sugar by Europe during the early modern era. Just as sugar had to be imported to England and was, for a considerable length of time, considered a luxury good, 
so too were new plants popping up on England's shores during the early modern era, like the pineapple. Originally from South America, Europe, and particularly England, became besotted with the spiny yellow fruit when Europeans first learned about the pineapple's existence in the late 15th century. Pineapples became the ultimate high-end good. The effort to pick and ship a pineapple all the way to England from South America meant they were highly costly. Showing off a pineapple in your home soon became a symbol of refined taste, and eventually, hospitality. Because if you were willing to share your hard-won pineapple with guests, you must have been one generous host. And today, when you visit the Fitzwilliam Museum, the symbol of hospitality and culinary history is embodied in a 10-foot-tall pineapple, currently located on the grounds just outside the entrance to the museum. I did, I had to ask, of course, about the pineapple and the, its role in this exhibition, because um, there's a very prominent pineapple, um, I believe now, at, at the Fitzwilliam. And also there's a, there's a whole element of the pineapple's connection to the Fitzwilliam, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. So basically, um, we have a sort of a direct and an indirect connection. So the indirect connection comes through our founder, Viscount Fitzwilliam. His maternal grandfather was a very wealthy Dutch sort of um, banker who came over from Amsterdam, settled in Britain in around 1700, bought an enormous estate in Richmond-upon-Thames and was a very, very keen gardener. Now, the Dutch had been semi-successfully growing pineapple slightly weedy and small, but nevertheless. Now, Decker, Matthew Decker, comes to England and thinks, right, I'm going to be the first chap um, in Britain to successfully grow pineapples, and I'm going to make sure that they're bigger and better and tastier um, than the Dutch. So, um, from the 1710s, he starts cultivating pineapples. And really, by 1720, he's managed to absolutely master how to grow them. So, we have a portrait of a pineapple, one of the, you know, the pick of the crop, uh, painted in 1720 by a Dutch artist, Theodorus Netscher. Um, and so, we're celebrating 300 years of the pineapple growing in, in, in Britain through, um, I say, Matthew Decker, who's the grandfather of our founder. The second link, which is even more direct to Cambridge, of course, uh, Matthew Decker couldn't have known he was going to have a grandson who was going to form the Fitzwilliam Museum. <laughs> but the direct link is that he was very friendly with a chap called Richard Bradley. Um, and Richard Bradley was soon to become the first professor of botany at Cambridge University. And in 1721, he's so impressed with the horticultural achievements of Matthew Decker. He writes uh, all about it in one of his um, gardening magazines. And he tells the general public how wonderful and how clever and how brilliant his Decker and his Dutch gardeners he gives almost like a step-by-step -step guide that if you happen to have about 9,000 quid per pineapple, you too can grow <laughs> a pineapple from scratch in your garden. And then he produces also recipes explaining how to use these pineapples. And so it's really this partnership between Matthew Decker and Richard Bradley that starts off pineapple mania in the UK and really from the 1730s, 1740s, all the wealthy, the aristocrats and the gentry are out doing each other to try and grow pineapples. And they spend lots of money building pineries and vineries and you know, building glass houses and so on. 
Um, and if you think pineapple mania, in a sense, is the UK 18th century equivalent of tulip mania in Holland the century before. So that's really the Cambridge connection. And that's why we've got this rather large pineapple on the front lawn by these contemporary artists, Bompers and Parr, to really intrigue people. It's slightly um, kitsch. It's rather marvellous. It's 10 foot tall. It illuminates at night. And the idea was it was supposed to be fun and family oriented and get people through the door over their threshold fear, engage with the pineapple on the lawn. And then they will come into the museum, which is free, and they can go and see the exhibition. And it's really supposed to be a beacon of sort of fun and fancy and frivolousness on the front lawn just to get people in across the threshold and into the museum to then engage with the exhibition and the rest of the permanent galleries. Which I think sounds like a, a brilliant idea, because who wouldn't want to go understand the story of a, a 10 foot tall pineapple on the front lawn of a museum? I think that's a wonderful. Can I also add sort of the dark side of the pineapple? Of course, <laughs> because, of course. Because that's, I think that seems to be my job. So <laughs> it is, the pineapple is fun and it's amazing and it's this important kind of decorative motif that has this very long history into into the twenty into the 20th century, actually into the 21st century. Um and it was an ex- extremely expensive, as Vicky suggested, uh, plant to grow. Um, and it, now today it has become an, an everyday fruit. I mean, it costs a pound in Britain to buy a pineapple today. And so Vicky and I were super interested also in the extent to which, one, it was a, a symbol of, of a luxury, that it was definitely a symbol of globalization, um, a kind of growing uh, world of trade um, in, in the early modern period, but today has also become something that is like an everyday exotic. So we're making the pineapple a focus of a conference at Cambridge University in February, the 20th and 21st of February. And it's a collaboration with a plant scientists at the herbarium and at the botanic gardens in the university, alongside historians, decorative arts, uh, historians, historians of science, as a way of just thinking about the pineapple, its journey from this early history, its discovery in quotation marks in the late 15th century, through to this um, competitive uh, horticultural in the horticulture in the 18th century, through to becoming really an, uh, something that ends up in a pineapple or underneath a pineapple upside down cake. Oh, yes. And I know there's uh, from, say, the, the American side, there's a very interesting uh, history of, say, dole and and the use of the pineapple, all these things. Um, and I wish we, we had time to, to go into it more, but hopefully people will be inspired to go and see the 10 foot tall pineapple and, of course, the rest of the exhibition in Cambridge. And it is open until, I believe, end of April 2020. That's correct. The 26th of April, 2020, as I say, we're free. We're open every day apart from a Monday. So please don't come on a Monday. But please, <laughs> um, there's a website. So please do check out the website. Um, even if you can't make it to the actual show, please do buy the wonderful catalogue. It's beautifully, beautifully illustrated with wonderful new conserved paintings and all of Ivan Day's spectacular recreations. To find out more about the Feast and Fast exhibition, please visit the Fitzwilliam website at fitzmuseum.cam.ac.uk. We'll also put a link to the exhibition on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. And there are so many great resources on the exhibition's website. You can see the fabulous sugar sculptures Ivan Day created, as well as read up about many of the objects featured in the collection. Remember, the exhibition is on until just after Easter in April 2020. 
If you find yourself in the Cambridge area of England, definitely stop by and check out the pineapple, not to mention the 300 objects of the exhibition itself. A big thank you to the co-curators of the exhibition, Drs. Vicki Avery and Melissa Kellerazu, for taking the time to talk to me about pineapples, sugar, and heavily Christian fasting. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Our digital director and photographer is Mike Port. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. And in particular, a huge thank you to the Feast's official London reporter in the field, James Barrell who visited the exhibition when it opened in late November, reporting back to us with grand tales of giant pineapples and sinewy sculptures of sugar. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Feast underscore podcast, where we often put up some extra images from our travels and discoveries about food history. You can also follow us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter to get all our Feast news directly at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another great meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.